BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and this, of course, is Matt Splain. Now, we all have those moments where we think back to things that we've done, or, or worse, what we've said, and we cringe about it. I mean, for Matt, I, I'm guessing it probably happens on a second-by-second second basis, but have you ever stopped to wonder what future societies will think about us? Matt? Hey, Rich. Um... You know, one of the things that interests me the most about looking at the future is actually history. Mm. And I know how that sounds. Um, so, you know, bear with me. I'll try and make it make sense. Um, the most normal thing in the world is when we look at the future, we try and imagine it from our present perspective, right? You know, that's yeah. how progress works. It marches on. It's this additive process. It takes what we have now, it adds a little here and there and uh, cuts cuts a bit to create something new. You know, things mm. like voice-assisted technology, uh, device, uh, devices that can hear what we say. They have a fairly good crack at passing it and turning it into useful commands. But when we only look at voice technology from that present perspective, it's easy to lose sight of everything that went before it. You know, part of the, the process of looking at how we can create natural language processing in machines is by looking at the thousands of years of history of evolution yeah. of speech. Yeah. You know, we, we talk about uh, generations of technology or the evolution of neural networks. You have to evolve from somewhere, and it's rarely from the present mm. you know the the iphone didn't drop fully formed completely out of nowhere there were decades of advances in chips and screens and miniaturization technologies not to mention you know the the work that went before by companies like palm and philips and hp and a lot more in creating that first wave of pocket pcs in the the 1990s mm -hmm. all of that all of that knowledge, all of that thinking went into the creation of the iPhone. You know, what made that device a game changer was that the apps weren't just replications of things that we already did on our computers, yeah. which was kind of what the pocket PCs were. Um, and, you know, by that point, non-smartphones already had camera and video capability. Uh, some phones could play MP3s and, and movies, but there were very few that did all of those things together and did them really well. So the way we used apps changed what we expected phones to do. Yeah, uh, especially as we made those jumps from um, mobile data speeds from 2G to 3G. Mm. You know, suddenly devices had the power, they had the data speeds to run proper websites rather than uh, WAP portals. Remember oh. those? Oh, my or, word. Or, yeah, or, or massively slimmed down mobile sites. Uh, it it dovetailed with um, that acceleration of the social web. Mm -hmm. So apps let us take these new sites with us on the move uh, on Android as well as Apple devices. Uh, GPS chips turned them into navigation devices. Mm -hmm. And of course now with 4G, with 5G, a lot of us feel confident going out without a laptop because we know we can cover you know, the work basics with the phone. We can reply to emails and messages. We can make minor ed uh, edits to documents. We can view all of our files on mm. these little screens. So all of these huge changes that mobile devices have made to our lives have happened in less than 15 years. Mm. And that's without going into the, the kind of uh, 
technology adoption acceleration that we saw during the COVID years. Um, you know, by by nature, I'm a, a forward-looking person. I'm not particularly sentimental uh, about the past. I don't have lots of objects from my youth hanging around. I've always taken the view that the future is a better place to be. And it's one of the reasons I find it so strange that we live in a time where you know, people who are labeled as progressives are increasingly vilified because mm. we live in an age of endless progress. And to think that social change doesn't accompany technological change is just frankly naive. You can't have one without the other. And that's also something that history tells us. History also tells us that progress doesn't always lead to better outcomes, though. Well, there is some truth to that. You know, empires rise and fall, um, momentum uh, becomes stasis and entropy. It's certainly, you know, not always a smooth curve, but that only reinforces the importance of history in looking to the future. You know, what caused some civilizations or social movements to fall by the wayside? So one thing that is common to our past, our present and our future is us, humans. We haven't really changed that much over millennia. You know, we might be a bit smarter, a bit taller. We live a bit longer, but we're essentially the same, you know, biomechanical marvel that we've been for the last sort of 50,000 years or so. Mm -hmm. So one of the, the regular and recurring themes of the show is that technology moves faster than the social norms. So societies throughout history have always seemed to be chasing technology. Uh, if you look at the current, the present, cryptocurrencies are a really good example. You know, they exist in this regulatory gray zone in a lot of countries. They're not covered by the same rules that govern most financial or investment related transactions. So in a few years time, we'll probably look back at this period of the, the Web3 Wild West and wonder what the hell we were thinking about in the noughties and the early 20s. And that's really <laughs> the purpose of today's show, to look at some of the, the technologies or the related behaviors that we have now or, you know, th that we have used until very recently and see what uh, or, or see how the future us is likely to cringe when they think about the things that we do today. And that's just the introduction. I mean, that's probably the <laughs> longest and the most serious one you've done to a frivolous show uh, I think you've ever managed. Uh, yeah, and future me will probably look back on this and uh, and wince and cringe, um, you know, uh, as its disembodied mind floats through the cloud, looking down on its human slaves sleeping in their matrix. Mm. Um, I'm not going to give anyone the Keanu matrix, by the way. I'm planning something much more Carmageddon-like, uh, if you haven't played that game look it up. Um, there's no point being a, a robot overlord um, unless I get to have some fun. So mm, yeah, mm. as I mentioned, I think we'll look back at this period of um, blockchain building, um, the rise and fall of companies like FTX with nothing but incredulity. You're calling out the crypto bros. Um, <laughs> or, or, or do you think we'll be looking at this, this kind of whole era of, of tech bros in the same way? I think so. I think we'll look at it with that wider view. Mm. Um, you know, we'll look back at this whole ethos of disruption as being really cringy. You know, future us will look back and wonder why we were so intent on tearing things down with no real idea of what to replace them with. Right. You know, that the idea that you could take borrowed money, use it to 
you know, decimate an existing business sector and then base your model, your business model on being the only one left standing. Mm. Uh, You know, I'm sure future monopoly legislation is going to have a lot to say about that kind of, uh, that kind of business practice. Um, Not that I'm saying that, you know, business in the future will be any kinder or more socially conscious beyond, you know, the kind of PR necessities. But the idea of companies having market values of tens of billions or hundreds of billions before they ever produce a single penny in operating profit will be looked on as, you know, a massive speculative folly. Uh, To an extent, you know, maybe we've we're kind of seeing the end of it already with the crash in tech stocks over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we're seeing at least some of the the trust and investor confidence in the vision of the tech bros, you know, starting to ebb away. Um, although the uh, support of prominent venture capitalists for people like WeWork founder Adam Newman and his next uh, property-related company, Flow, uh, suggests that, you know, the taking of billions of dollars and tanking a company is no reason for not being handed billions more. So mm. um, some lessons are, are going to be more hard learned than others, I guess. Um, just a thought. Uh, are you going to include the word pivot in your list of things to, uh, <laughs> to uh, commend to the uh, dust bowl? Uh, very much so. Uh, you know, yes. it's it's very much part and parcel of the disruption era. Uh, you start a company, you take some money, you wreak havoc on an economic sector, and then once you realize that you've got no business model, you pivot to something else to raise some more cash to extend your journey. Um it's funny, you know, it's often the same people who are at national deficit hawks that are happy to speculatively fund companies with no real model to return their investment. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, the thinking is that countries should be run like companies. Um, they shouldn't borrow more than they earn, whereas companies can somehow borrow endlessly without generating any real income. Um, I don't really understand it, but um, I I think the future us is going to look back on the uh, first couple of decades of this century and just wonder what on earth we thought we were playing at. So then, Matt, what about the uh, wider world of of social media? Well, certainly I think we'll look back at this era of oversharing with um, a certain element of horror. Uh, I don't think we'll necessarily be communicating less or sharing less in the future, but I think, you know, the, 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 I think it's more to do with the way that, that the content has evolved. Um, on a recent episode of a, a Bit of Culture, I talked about the new trend for de-influencers mm. uh, who are supposedly anti-influencer, anti-conspicuous capitalism, but really, the vast majority of them are just budget-friendly influencers. You know, the, the message seems to be, don't buy this $200 face cream, buy this $20 one. Or right. don't buy Apple AirPods, these $50 phones are great. Now, there's definitely a need for that. You know, the Lux lifestyle looks less aspirational than delusional to people at the moment, you know, with tight paychecks. But it's a little bit damning about um, the culture that the supposed counterculture is actually just the same culture at a lower price point. So mm. as I, I mentioned in the um, the A Bit of Culture episode, this could be in some ways the last kick of millennial culture, the last cohort of that generation trying to uh, get by on the idea of you know the endless hustle uh, before they get replaced by a generation that 
doesn't define itself by hustle. It doesn't define itself by a job title, uh, a startup, or you know some side hustle. Mm. Uh, a generation that treats the nine to five as exactly that, an eight hour inconvenience that stands between them and what they truly want to do. Mm. And I think we'll look back on these years of you know airbrushed Instagram content and living our so-called best lives with some regret. You know, wondering why we put all this effort into pretending our lives were something that, you know, obviously they weren't. Which brings me to something that I would like to throw into the dust bowl, right? And something that, that I, I think we would cringe about on social media. Go on then. Food photos, uh, right? That, that moment where you've sat down, you're all engaged in conversation, you've ordered your food, you're having a great time, the menu, uh, the restaurant turns up with your delicious-looking food, and you have to stop and wait 10, 15 minutes while some friend, stroke idiot, runs around taking glossy photographs that are going to get uploaded onto Instagram, and you're going to look at it once and go, yeah, that was a nice meal. Can you imagine if our parents would have done that with their Polaroids years ago? You know, no, no, Dad, why? Why? I, <laughs> I can't. I mean, one of the one of the things I think that that gets me the most about that kind of scenario as well is, okay, if you want to wait ten minutes and take pictures of your own food, fine. Yes, that's that's fine. But if you say no, don't touch that to me about my food. Yes, because you want to take a picture of my dish. No, I want yes. to eat. Yes. That is exactly my issue. And it, it, what are you doing with those photographs? Who cares what you ate at lunch and dinner? And I know this discussion has been going on for a while with other people for the last God knows how many years, five, ten years. But it's a real thing, and it's still irritating. And I, I don't well, know if I might. Hmm. I, think, I think people also forget that when they see, like, food photos in magazines or on adverts and billboards, that's not actually real food right. a lot of the time. You know, it's created to look good under the camera. So people are trying to pursue endlessly this this perfect ideal of what a food shot looks like. Mm, mm. Where it, whereas, you know, real food shots are all fake. Yes, fake steam. Uh, did you know, Samsung and some other phone manufacturers even put a, fo a food filter on their camera. About that, I've got more ranting to come after the break here on, of course, uh, Matt's Plane. I'm going to be talking about, well, very briefly, TikTok dancers. TikTok dancers. We'll be right back here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury, and of course, this is Matt Splained. We are cringing here on Matt Splained today. Not that we don't normally. Uh, and when future generations look back at this period of our history, will they wonder what the hell we were thinking about? I, I know we had to stop you, uh, well, stop both of us mid-ramp for, for the break. Um, so I'm going to uh, let you carry on, because I know there's something else that you've got to mm. get off your chest. TikTok dancers, Matt. TikTok dancers, right. I understand um, that TikTok is all-encompassing. It's this worldwide phenomenon. People love it. Um, but these dancers have not just become something that people take part in to have fun with anymore and share. I was in 
a very popular hardware store here in Malaysia, right? Trying to walk down the aisle, and there was an influencer, I say influencer in, you know, air quotes, and they were dancing in the middle of the aisle uh, for TikTok. And as I tried to walk past them to get to the stuff that I wanted to do in that kind of grumpy old man fashion, they complained at me, you know, you're in my shot. I'm like, you're in my store. <laughs> Why? Yeah. I, th I think I think there's that line, isn't there, between fun and taking it a, a bit too seriously. Um, I, you know, it's like uh, I think we we mentioned. Uh, I think it was last week when we talked about the uh, the Kia challenge mm. on the the social media yes. platforms. You know, these things can easily sort of get out of hand. Fine, if you want to do a, a dance challenge or whatever in. Uh, you know, your house, your garden, um, in a public space where you're not uh, interrupting anyone. But when mm. you start moving it into, uh, like you said, the aisles of a store, then mm. it starts being, you know, a bit of a social barrier. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, I think one of the earliest challenges was the the ice bucket challenge, yeah, right? Yeah, Is that yeah, the, yeah. the mid-whatever. Now, you can't imagine somebody walking into the middle of a supermarket to do the ice bucket challenge. Yeah, it's find doing it in your uh, in mm. your back garden and uh, making a mess you know in a place that you own but you mm. very quickly get kicked out if uh, if you were doing it in a in a public yeah. space i mean it's already think, go on no no i know, and i i think this is just something that people lose lose sight of the focus mm. is so much on their content and mm. their audience that they don't actually give any thought to you know what's happening around them, mm. the the kind of wider perspective it's already difficult enough to find stuff in that shop as it is, you know, without having to go around some influencer. Anyway, um, all of this, oversharing, the food photography, the dancing, do you think all of this will ever be or even be relevant in a metaverse-dominated future? Um, I mean, it, it's a good point, but just to go back to the, uh, the, the hardware store, I, I do think the hardware stores of the future will be a lot better organized. I, uh, than I, the, I hope so, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm always completely impressed by when I go into my neighborhood store, which is laid out in some system that makes no sense to anyone, but I can ask any of the staff where, you know, even the smallest screw is, and they know exactly where every item of right of stock that kind is. of store exactly that kind of store is a blessing. Yes, but yeah. trying to walk around one of the uh, the hardware multi stores and mm. figure out what the difference between um, uh, plumbing and I don't know whatever <laughs> else is you know it's just just makes your head burst. But anyway, um, metaverse. Yes, uh, you, yes, you yes. asked about the metaverse. So um, as we've said on the show numerous times, the Metaverse doesn't necessarily mean virtual reality, um, but you know that the idea of influencer culture, the idea of going on holiday and doing numerous outfit swaps in one day so that you have months worth of social content, I think that will seem absurd in the future. Uh, I think we mentioned this on a show before Christmas. There are now virtual fashion companies that create outrageous designs that you can't create in the physical world and mm. they will photoshop you into 
those designs, you know, against the backdrop of your choice. So we're at this cusp of altering what it means to experience things. Future generations may see less of a divide between experiencing things physically and experiencing them digitally. Right. So you you might not have the experience of going out wearing those creations, but you still have the experience of seeing how good you look wearing them, which is you know, an entirely different way of considering fast fashion. Uh, our physical selves can stick to, you know, a, a capsule wardrobe or a classic look collection focused on quality and value. And then we can endlessly change our looks in the digital realm without the kind of waste, the environmental harm, and the social exploitation that comes with a lot of fast fashion. Mm. Um you know, one of the, the the more horrific aspects of of this same technology for you might be that we can do the same with dance crazes, just deep fake our way into impossible dance moves. I mean, you're talking about wearing these digital creation. I'm just kind of wondering if Sam Smith was thinking about that when he wore his outfit to the Brit Awards. Did you see that? I didn't actually know. I'm I'm well, terrible at celebrity culture. Well, uh, but yeah, deep faking impossible dance moves. I think I saw something very similar where somebody was trying to do um, a backflip or a front flip or, or something on their social media, um, and it was just you. You could tell that they'd edited it, and it was key. Fr- you could see the keyframes as, the, and I'm like, why would you spend all that time doing that? You know, wouldn't it be more fun to to you know, capture your failure and have somebody laugh at that rather than spending all the time making it look like you were fantastic. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a good point. And uh, it's not something it's, it's actually something I forgot to include in the show for today, but CGI in general, I think Mm. again, in the future, we're going to look back at a lot of the CGI now that we think, I mean, even when you look at Marvel movies from 10 years ago, you look at the CGI and you think, oh, that's a little bit ropey. You know, everything starts to look like the the claymation um, dinosaurs of the, right. the 1950s and, and 60s. So I do wonder how these very kind of blue and green screen heavy movies are going to look uh, to people in sort of 20 or 30 years time. Um, but, you know, while we well, I've kind of deviated from it, but while we're still sort of in metaverse-adjacent territory, screens, I mean, that that relates Mm. to movies as well. I think future generations will look back at us being glued to screens with something approaching puzzlement. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, phone and tablet screens, laptops and desktops, TVs, monitor screens in public spaces and walls, let alone the VR rigs that (laughs) close us off from the world. Um, On the subject of which, if you haven't watched uh, this show, check it out. Uh, It's The Peripheral, uh, starring Chloe Grace Moritz, um, which has a really interesting look at a possible kind of VR influenced future for for humanity um but you know whether we end up with more kind of voice controlled systems or brain implant devices that go straight to our optical nerves or just plain old contact lenses or glasses Mm. the way future generations uh, are likely to interact with the digital world is probably going to be a lot less screen-based and a lot more natural why do you hate screens so much it's not so much that I hate screens or or typing. Well, I do hate typing. Um, future us will wonder why we gave ourselves arthritis just to feed <laughs> all of these machines. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with these technologies, but they really are a stopgap solution. You know, screens mm. are a 20th century solution to the problem of recording and 
conveying information and entertainment, especially over a distance, mm. in the same way that paper, ink, and printing were to the generations that came before. So, you know, we, we touched on voice technologies uh, a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. All of these workarounds are basically ways to do something that we've done effortlessly for tens of thousands of years, you know, use our voices to communicate. Screens and all their associated access accessories, you know, the, the, the mice and the whatever else, they're just a way to send our thoughts or our imaginations across a distance. Mm. In, in the future, I think we'll have solved those issues of sending information. Our voices will be turned into text instantly if that's what we want. Uh, we may even have gone several stages further by then. You know, maybe brain-computer interfaces will um, make most of the messaging that we currently do superfluous. We'll just think the message and it's sent to the recipient and the recipient either enjoys it in real time or puts it in a store to be looked at at, at leisure. You mm. know, we've we've seen those movies where advertising and product messages appear as overlays um, in your vision triggered by proximity sensors. Yeah. I do hope that that's not the way we go, but it's likely that there'll be some trade-off for cheaper versions of, of technology that will be subsidized by some form of product messaging. But I do think we'll have some sort of hybrid system that takes us seamlessly between these kind of different layers of immersion. And that in the future, we'll wonder why billions of people walked around, uh, walked around with their heads down looking at mm. tiny screens in their hands all day. So where does AI fit into the picture for you then? Well, I mean, a big part of this is AI-related, I guess. You know, I, I don't want to speculate too much about the, the future of AI, you know, whether it's going to be sentient, uh, whether it's going to be in control, uh, and, and if it is what it's actually in control of. I think future generations will wonder why we were so reckless with AI systems today. Mm. And I don't mean things like ChatGPT, which for all the hype around it, it's actually relatively benign, mm. but more with the algorithms that underpin everything that we do online. You know, I would hope that future societies demand a lot more transparency over the uh, dumb AI systems that regulate what we see, how information is served up to us, how financial systems are underpinned, patrolled and how transactions are made. You know, at the moment, companies hide behind protection of their IP. The algorithm is their business advantage. So yeah. we have no real idea how much even they understand the mathematics of the systems that govern their platforms. You know, we know that algorithms were at least partly to blame for the recession in the late noughts and the, the tweens, or rather our lack of understanding about the behavior and purpose of these algorithms was to blame for that recession. Uh, I recently finished reading um, a book called Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, the guy who wrote The Martian. And there was a passage in it, um, just a brief comment, so I'm not spoiling the plot, but it talked about uh, the computer systems that would keep astronauts healthy uh, on a long journey in an induced coma state. And a character was asked if the systems would be AI-assisted, uh, to which the reply was, um, it would be algorithmic, but not a neural net, because they had to ensure that the system would operate only with known outcomes and 
techniques. So this mm. next bit is my addition, not Andy Weir's. Um, but you can imagine a neural net left on its own, pontificating at light speed for several years of a space <laughs> journey and coming to the conclusion that brains in jars will be easier to uh, take care of than bodies in stasis. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I think we'll look back and think, you know, what were we doing with AI? The idea that algorithms and neural nets are private property that can't be examined by either experts or the public to ensure that they're safe, I think that will be viewed as being entirely absurd. All right. And just to flip the script uh, for the end of the show, do you think that there's anything that history forgot um, that we might bring back in the future? I have given this quite a lot of thought. Uh, and of course, the answer I came up with is entirely facetious. Um, we've, done, <laughs> we've done a few historical tech shows over the years, and a firm favorite have has been the baby cages that were popular in cities like uh, New York in Matthew. the early years of the 20th century. No, healthy living was a big craze in the US at the time. Yes, you know, pioneers yes. like Kellogg of Cornflakes fame. Uh, the benefits of fresh air were being widely promoted. And of course, there wasn't a lot of fresh air and open spaces available to people living in tenements in cities at the time. So someone came up with the idea of putting young children in wire baskets or cages, which were then hung from the outside of the window ledge. So similar to you know the way we suspend the outside unit of an air conditioner today. So you could stand in the street and look up and see all these floating babies above you. So I think future societies will bring back baby cages, not for the fresh air, but simply because this is the best environment to keep these little wild animals in. Um, no more helicopter parenting. We'll have helicopter cages. Uh, I'm fine with making them drone powered. They can float a few feet above their parents' heads. And that way, the sideworks and the malls aren't congested with prams and push chairs the size of an SUV. <sighs> um. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think maybe that future generations might just, you know, look back at your hatred of kids and cringe? I doubt it because I think future generations will be making children from a freeze-dried DNA mix in a kiln. Right, um, okay. They'll probably feel <laughs> nauseous every time they think of a human gestating inside another person. Now, I know we're running out of time, um, so a quick summary of all the things that, or some of the things I didn't get to. Again, in the future, I think people will gasp at the way our society is based on fossil fuels. Um, they probably won't be any more impressed by our move to electric-powered vehicles that are powered mm. in turn by fossil fuel-derived energy. They'll wonder how we ever got anything done with officials elected every five years or so, because in the future, all major policies can be put to you know instant national electronic votes, mm. uh, or how uh, our barbaric and backward medical technology managed to keep everyone alive, or how we were so scared of easily curable conditions like cancer. Uh, they'll be horrified that a huge chunk of the plant's resources were devoted to turning animals into protein instead of using those resources to create sustainable lab-based protein sources. Uh, I do hope there'll be enough wealth that in the future they'll look at 
you know, our current global inequalities and wonder how some of us manage to live with our exp- uh, ourselves, you know, enjoying our expensive phones and our full supermarket shelves when billions of other people had a lot less. But, mm. you know, that's the thing about the past. It usually looks like a wild and savage place. But that mm. doesn't mean that we aren't doing our best in the present to change things. But it does mean that we can't afford to, to look at where we are now and think, you know, we've done it. This is the mm. best that things can possibly be. Well, um, thank you very much for that, Matt. Thank you. I, I managed to really bring it down with that last session. Well, just a little bit, just a little bit. We went from baby cages to this is the best things could possibly be. Yeah, baby cages was the high for me. Yeah, I, I think that was a highlight. Anyway, on that note, we should say goodbye for today's episode. Thank you very much for tuning in to Matt's Plain as usual. Um, head over to... Uh, my substack, culturepop.substack.com. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you did miss any part of the show, download the podcast wherever you normally get it from or use the BFM app. That's available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Matt Splain and BFM, my name is Rich Bradbury here on BFM 89.9.